It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. Lots to talk about a trio of Chrome issues. Where there's a new uh, DDoS attack, a new amplification attack using the Plex Media Server. There are three new Solar Winds vulnerabilities you need to know about. And then we'll wrap things up with a closer look at the attack at the far, uh, Florida, small town Florida water facility. It was a SCADA attack. The details coming up next on Security Now. Podcasts you love from people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 805, recorded Tuesday, February 9th, 2021. SCADA scandal. Security Now is brought to you by Udacity. Build your tech skills through industry-leading programs created and recognized by top companies worldwide with a nano degree from Udacity in as little as 12 weeks. Visit udacity.com slash twit and use the coupon code twit at checkout to get 50% off 50 through May 30th, 2021. And by Gabby Insurance. You're probably overpaying on car and home insurance. We were. Gabby saved us thousands. It's totally free to check and there's no obligation. Go to Gabby.com slash security now. And by Worldwide Technology and Checkpoint Software Technologies. When was the last time your company updated your security strategy? Are your business assets protected? WWT offers security solutions and services that will protect every endpoint of your business and help you combat the next-gen threats. Visit WWT.com slash twit to get started. It's time for Security Now, the show we cover your security online, your privacy, the way things work, protecting yourself. This is the guy right here, Steve Gibson from the Gibson Research Corporation. Hello, Steve. Yo, Leo. Good to see you. Great to be with you again, Good to see as you. always. I see that you've got the soldering iron out. <laughs> so you're making something. Yeah, I was doing a little construction work. That's true. <laughs> yep. Someday that speak and spell will work again. And there are always things more interesting to do than cleaning up around here. Absolutely. So that Absolutely. never kind of, it was sort of a constant entropy battle yeah which i'm generally losing yeah. you know th at some point with one's car uh it stops getting more dirty because <laughs> as new dirt arrives old dirt falls off and so you reach a homostasis <laughs> that's so steve <laughs> you know <laughs> no that's good observation steve I guess it's actually equilibrium as opposed Equilib to your car reaches so, a filth equilibrium, a, a dirt equilibrium <laughs> where it's just like, OK. And then when you get used to that, it's like, OK, oh, looks yeah. fine to you. Neighbors are like, who is this guy? Well, as long as they so, don't start writing stuff in your in the dirt, you're all right. It has. I, I actually I used to be known by my local car wash people. They were really neat and they took good care of me. I haven't seen them in a year because yeah, me neither. I, don't want, I don't want them in my car. No, exactly. I can, you know, there's things you can do without. It's not the end of the world if you don't get a car washed. But Leo, it is so cool when a tank of gas lasts six months because <laughs> yes. that's like a, a whole yes. new thing. You don't have gas, I realize, any longer, but no. you know. I remember uh, making a note back in November when I got the Audi uh, filled up. I thought, I'm not, this is the last time I'm going to a gas station. <laughs> That was kind yeah. of a wild thought. Yeah. 
So um, we've got some interesting stuff for our 805th episode of uh, February 9th. This is, uh, uh, I wanted to call it Super Tuesday, but it's Patch Tuesday. Uh, so we'll be talking about what happened today, next Tuesday. Uh, but we've got a collection of interesting and some engaging news surrounding Google's Chrome browser. Uh, I was going to use the word trifecta, but that apparently only applies to betting. So instead, it's just a trio. Uh, uh, we're also going to look at a high-profile Windows Defender misfire. Uh, we have a couple new WordPress plugin nightmares and maybe a suggestion for those of our listeners who have WordPress and can't get away from it for whatever reason. We're also going to check in on the world of DDoS attacks uh, inspired by a particular um, uh, media server. Plex has a problem. Uh, it's turned out that the bad guys have found, I don't remember now how many thousands, but many, tens of thousands of Plex server protocols online and have figured how to bounce traffic off of it to use to add it to their ddos attacks but it also gives us a chance to sort of check in on the where the industry is in ddos and uh, the numbers are sort of daunting um we've also got three new critical vulnerabilities found in SolarWinds software and the way they've been found and what it means about the things that haven't been found in other software, I think, is significant. So we're going to talk about that. We've got some closing-the-loop feedback from our listeners. I'm going to give a quick update to my past week's work of uh, with Spinrite, uh, heading toward the next one. Um, and then I just want to finish for with the issue that – titled this podcast SCADA Scandal uh, or SCADA Scandal. Uh, uh, S-C-A-D-A uh, is, of course, the acronym or the abbreviation for the industrial control system technology that runs pretty much everything. Uh, there was a near miss that occurred in a little little town in Florida uh, Last Friday. Was that a SCADA uh, it, system? Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, boy, I hope it serves as a wake up call because there are like several things wrong with this story. I mean, like, like with the facts which are true about the story, the, the, the things that should not be the case. So uh, I think an interesting discussion about that. And of course, we have a, a fun picture of the week for our for our. For our, I was going to say for our listeners, well, not so much, mostly for our viewers. Yeah. We'll subtitle this one, Why You Don't Want More Lie in Your Water. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I didn't re oh, good. I can't wait. I didn't, I'm fascinated to hear this story. But before we do, let me talk a little bit about Udacity. I know you guys uh, and gals, everybody listening, you're geeks. You're interested in tech. You want to know more. You have a questing mind, a thirst for learning. And I would, I hope you know about Udacity. It was started uh, around about 10 years ago by Sebastian Thrun, a Googler who said, you know, this Internet thing is going to be great for learning. He said it's audacious, so we're going to call it Audacity without the A, U-D-A-C-I-T-Y. Tech world is complicated. If you're looking for 
a job in tech, you need to have, you know, just the right skill. Udacity is the best way to get those skills, the most efficient, the fastest way to master the skills tech companies we want. And we know tech companies want them because Udacity's nano degrees are created by companies like Google because they need people with these skills. A Udacity nano degree program is a unique online educational offering designed to bridge the gap between learning and, and the things you might have learned in high school and college and your career goals. Because they're working with industry leaders and experts who know what the in-demand applicable job skills are, you're going to get exactly the skills you need. Not some theoretical basis, but exactly the skills you need. You'll also get, and I love this about the classes I've taken in Udacity, you also get the theoretical basis. But it's with a very much of a practical eye. And Udacity does so many great things to help you get a job. They have some free programs that are fantastic. Polish up your GitHub, for instance. Uh, if you're a coder, GitHub is your portfolio. It's what you show the world. Having a great setup uh, on GitHub, you know, is, is a huge step forward in marketing and business and other careers. And I guess coding too. LinkedIn, also a very useful place. But does your LinkedIn profile show you it in the best light? They have a class in that as well. Uh, you can take a class on how to network. This is something, you know... Many geeks are really good at the technical stuff, less good in the networking, you know, the human side of it. So that's another place where you can learn some useful skills that will help you get your dream career. What are the most sought-after nanodegrees with Udacity for consumers and for business clients alike? Some of the nanodegrees you'll find in the top ten. Data analyst. I think these are in the top ten not only because people are interested in it, but also there are great jobs available in these categories. Uh, program for data science using Python. Digital marketing. It's not all coding. It's not all geeky stuff. Digital marketing. They have so many more incredible programs for you to choose from. AI, cloud computing, data science. You want to learn how to design self-driving cars? They have a whole nano degree in autonomous systems. Programming every language under the sun. I've taken their Python course. It's fantastic. In fact, I'm looking at the intermediate course now. Development and product management, digital marketing. Nano degree programs include, in many cases, classroom mentorship by real people. In fact, they're looking for mentors. If you've already taken some classes, Udacity is always, and that's a paying job. Uh, classroom mentorship really helps. It's really great because, you know, just the online part alone is not enough to really get you the skills you need. You need to talk to people and work with people to understand, you know, how to how to work on a team. There are moderated forums and your projects. And by the way, Udacity is big on projects because, and I've noticed this too, you could take a class and go, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it. But until you're sitting down and actually doing the project, you don't get it. <laughs> you don't got it. So the, the projects are really an important part of these classes. And they get you'll get a personalized human project review as well. These are industry-leading programs built and recognized by the best companies in the world. I mentioned Google, but there's IBM, Microsoft, AWS. And when I say world, I mean world. There are people from all over the world using Udacity right now. Practically every country, 150,000 nanodegree certificates have been awarded. <clears throat> That's in the last 10 years. It's really a, a very impressive 
and really high-quality education. Improve your earning potential. Take charge of your career. With Udacity, you get real employable skills through project-based active learning that covers the cutting-edge technology you want to learn and companies want you to have. I love it that you get reviewed by qualified professionals. So, you know, you're, you're getting the kind of feedback that you would get if you were working at Google or Microsoft or Amazon. You get real human help, personalized code reviews. And those mentors are there 24-7 because, well, for two reasons. One, Udacity is global. But also because I, I know a lot of times you're taking these courses, you've got a day job. you got to take them when it's convenient, when the kids are in bed maybe after dinner. So they have to be there when you are, and that's what Udacity does. They've got great free courses if you just want to do a toe-in. They have flexible payment options. You can learn at your own pace and your schedule. Great example. I mentioned uh, Francisco Gutierrez before, but I just love this story. He wanted a better life for his family, uh, and he, a four-year degree was just out of reach for him, too expensive. They uh, had a thing they... Uh, called Grow with Google Udacity Challenge. Smart guy, so he participated in that, was awarded a full scholarship for the Mobile Web Specialist Nano degree, got the degree, went through the program, then got an internship because of it. He got an internship from Microsoft. And after a while, they offered him a full-time role. He is now a software engineer at Microsoft. And very happy, as you will be too. Thanks to Udacity. Check out, uh, if you're a business, check out Udacity for Enterprise. They've got training for your employees as well. Get the education that broadens your horizons. It's a great way to learn, much better than any other system, much better than trying to do it on your own. Udacity, U-D-A-C-I-T-Y dot com slash twit. Right now through the end of May, you can get 50% off uh, when you use the coupon code TWIT. So please do that. Save yourself some money. 50% off udacity.com slash TWIT. If you just put the coupon code in, the uh, discount, 50% discount will be applied at checkout. But that's only good through May 30th, 2021. Udacity.com slash TWIT. Coupon code TWIT. We know you love tech. I mean, who doesn't, right? If you listen to this show, you are a geek. Now you can really put it to work for you and uh, get a great job. Uh, Steve Gibson, on we go with your illustration of the week. And I'm going to, your picture of the week, I'm going to show its original source because I recognize immediately the great talents of Randall Monroe at XKCD. I love his stuff. (laughs) And this one's right on. Um, Anyway, so what we have is a industrial scale Venn diagram uh, with the caption, I have a hard time keeping track of which contacts use which chat systems. And uh, so we've got, you know, a large Venn circle of email, lots of people in there. Then that, and with a large overlap between those users who are SMS, because, of course, that's just simple messaging service. Um, then we've got we've got two little people out all by themselves using AIM. Remember that, and also ICQ. There's only one person in that circle, and that's still around. Uh, I found out the other day. I'm stunned. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. I had a really low numbered ICQ oh, account because by some do. weird <laughs> weird account, I so yeah. Uh, anyway, we got Skype, Slack, iMessage. Facebook Messenger, Instagram DMs, Twitter DMs, Zephyr, BBMs. Uh, I guess that's what BBM, Blackberry, that was. Blackberry Messenger. Blackberry yeah. ma- 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 Messenger. Yeah. WhatsApp, 
IRC, Signal, Hangouts, I was Snapchat, on every one WeChat, of these, I think. Well, I was never on Beach. WeChat. Yeah. God. And so, you know, so Leo, actually, the Venn diagram could not be stretched to include you in all of these circles because <laughs> you're in too many of them. I'm in all of them. <laughs> There's a guy like Zephyr. Uh, oh, also, we have the chat tab in an old Google Doc was one of them. <laughs> we use those every day on the shows. <laughs> there's, there's two people there. And then we have someone writing on the wall of a bathroom. Uh, so there's that chat mode. Uh, the Apache request log, a telegram. I mean, anyway, so a lot of fun with this. And uh, just really but great. it's true. You know, the 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 problem with being so heterogeneous is it's annoying when you've got people spread all over the place. Um, I'm not sure why. Oh, I was going to say, I'm not sure why uh, Rasmus and I were not using iMessage because I think he's an iPhone person because we were using it when we were synchronizing in Sweden during our our, our European trip for to, to talk about Squirrel. But it's because Signal has a desktop client and one of my biggest annoyances with Apple is that, you know, they're hostile to anything that's not iOS or Mac. So, you know, Signal was something that we were able to use. But there's, again, a sort of an example of so sometimes you're pulled to a different application because you need to do something that the one you're using doesn't support for, you know, whatever reason. Anyway, just, you know, a, a fun observation that, uh, you know, when we were just talking about as people are abandoning WhatsApp because they're concerned about the, the change of its privacy terms. They were moving to Signal. And as we talked about last week, there was some guy, or I guess the, the week before, some guy saying, yeah, I, I switched to Signal. And, you know, he's like looking around. There's nobody here. I don't know anybody who's, you know, also uses Signal. So, yeah. Um, okay. There were three things that all happened last week affecting Chrome. Uh, first off, at the end of the week, actually, I think pretty much everything was Thursday, uh, uh, saying only that the extension contains malware, Google unceremoniously removed an extremely popular Chrome extension known as the Great Suspender. And it, if nothing else, it deserves a note for its name. Uh, they pulled it out of the Chrome Web Store uh, and caused 2 million plus of the Chrome browsers where it had been previously installed to immediately remove it from themselves. The Great Suspender was very popular with those wishing to run Chrome in memory lean environments. Uh, Chrome tabs are known to consume a great deal of RAM. And the great suspender's claim to fame was that it could suspend tabs and release their memory back to the system while kind of keeping the tab there as a placeholder so that it wouldn't cost the user any RAM, but they would sort of have the comfort of there being a tab there that they knew they could go click on. You know, it would have to reload the whole thing. But still, that was what the great suspender did. Last November... Things began to turn sour in Great Suspender Land. Uh, it was an open source app that was hosted on GitHub. And a November 3rd posting 
on GitHub, which was the beginning of a thread which garnered 449 comments, started off with the uh, TLDR saying <clears throat> the old, so this is November 3rd. So we're turning the clock back from what just happened on Thursday. The, 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 the person who began the thread said, the old maintainer appears to have sold the extension to parties unknown who have malicious intent to exploit the users of this extension in advertising fraud, tracking, and more. He said in version 7.1.8 of the extension, <clears throat> published to the web store but not to GitHub, arbitrary code was executed from a remote server which appeared to be used to commit a variety of tracking and fraud actions. After Microsoft removed it from Edge for malware, version 7.1.9 was created without this code. That has been the code running since November, and it does not appear to load the compromised script. The malicious maintainer remains in control, however, and can introduce an update at any time. That's the problem. That's yes. the problem. The updates aren't aren't screened. Correct. Well, there's just too much, as we know, Leo. It does, I mean, if you look at what's on the Play Store now, it's completely out of control. On the other hand, it's wide open and, and lots of opportunities there. Okay, so the more detailed discussion that followed... I thought was interesting, and I've sort of excerpted some of the best bits of that. The original developer was a person at Dean Oemke. I guess it's D-E-A-N-O-E-M-C-K-E. -E. So I'll just go with Dean Oemke. Uh, uh, so it was said that he chose to step back from the extension last June of 2020. As a replacement maintainer, he chose an unknown entity who controls the single-purpose at Great Suspender GitHub account. They wrote, much was suspicious about this change, including mention of payment for an open-source extension and complete lack of information on the new maintainer's identity. However, as the new maintainer did nothing for several months, it was originally believed that there was a failed transfer. In October 2020, the maintainer updated the Chrome Store package. The update raised red flags for some users because the change log was not modified and there was no tag created in GitHub. On investigation, it appeared that the extension was now connecting to various third-party servers and executing code from them. This led a few users to panic. However, on closer investigation, it appeared that the third-party servers were part of an alternative to Google Analytics, and the changes sh shipped along with a new, though unexplained, tracking deactivation. It appeared that deactivation worked. We would later discover that this was wrong. 
The discussion continued, however, because the new update also requested additional permissions, including the ability to manipulate all web requests. <laughs> As we know, we've talked about this in the past about Chrome. This lets the extension do whatever it pleases, inserting ads, blocking sites, forcible redirects, whatever. This change was supposedly in order to enable new screenshot functionality, but that was unclear and probably shouldn't be needed. Furthermore, the web store extension, they wrote, has diverged from its GitHub source. A minor change in the manifest was now being shipped on the Chrome web store, which was not included in GitHub. This is a major concern, though again, it was a possible innocent explanation, or it has a possible innocent explanation. While some think it is illegal, given the license on the code, this may not be a GPL violation. Because the minified script is not part of the extension, the license does not apply to it. Because of web store rules, the extension itself can be unpacked and inspected in full human-readable form, likely satisfying the copyleft restrictions. As a final red flag, they wrote, no part of the web store posting has been updated to account for this. Uh, Dino Emke remains listed as the maintainer, and the privacy policy makes no mention of the new tracking or maintainer. It has been several months since the transfer, but almost nothing reflects that change. Dino Emke did respond to the thread after a significant delay. He confirmed much of what is above, including that the secret changes are limited to analytics and are disabled by the flag. However, he hasn't yet clarified what his relationship or basis of trust with the new maintainer is, nor has he explained why the initial post mentions a purchase on November 6th, uh, someone named Lucas DF at Lucas DF discovered a smoking gun that the new maintainer is malicious. Although open web analytics is legitimate software, it does not provide the files executed by the extension. Those are hosted on the unrelated site http colon slash slash owebanalytics.com, which turns out to be immensely suspicious. That site, it's written here in GitHub, was created at the same time as the update and is clearly designed to appear innocent, being hosted on a public web host and being given a seemingly innocent homepage from the CentOS project. Yes, Leo. However, the site contains no real information other than the tracking scripts, appears to have been purchased with Bitcoin, and is only found in the context of this extension. Most importantly, the minified JavaScript differs significantly from that distributed by the, o the actual OWA, the Open Web Analytics Project. So anyway... I'll finish quoting this writer by observing that he's being extremely kind 
in his description of this clearly bogus owebanalytics.com site, which shows this sent OS page. So I went over, I was curious, to http colon slash slash owebanalytics.com to take a look around. First of all, it's http, not https. So I thought, ah, oh, I should probably switch that to https to see what its certificate looks like. <laughs> well, the certificate has a 90-day life, so we wouldn't be surprised to learn that it is signed by Let's Encrypt. But what's weird is that the common name on the certificate is cdn.owebanalytics.com. Uh, and that doesn't have an IP address associated with it and a website. So I was thinking well, that maybe the article was wrong and that the actual domain was cdnwebanalytics.com. But as I said, there's nothing there. Um, so the common name doesn't match. Um, anyway, I've got a link to the thread if, for anyone who's interested. And as you immediately responded, Leo, you know, this is sort of generally a problem uh, with, with extensions overall is that you know, they they often have a long history. They acquire a bunch of users, and it's possible for them to sort of go sideways. Um, but it's easy to imagine that some party uh, with less than completely charitable intentions might offer someone who originally developed and has been thanklessly maintaining a free browser extension that's been steadily growing in popularity through the years, some cash to buy them out of their thankless maintenance role. Um, and, you know, and you can see how that might be an, an appealing opportunity after many years of tireless effort. The seller, who likely still feels some responsibility for their project, hopes that it's all going to work out and wouldn't want to disparage the project's new owner. Yet there's probably some reason why control of a well-regarded and highly used open source extension was worth some money to its purchaser. And indeed, there were some activities discussed back in November, as I noted, that appeared to provide some hint of what was to come. So we don't know what finally happened to trip an alarm to cause Google to yank the extension completely from the Chrome Web Store. But the writing was certainly on the wall, and we've talked before about web browser extensions being allowed to have the power to filter and modify all web content, not just to them, but all web content you know, coming to and from the browser. As we know, something like uBlock Origin, it needs to do that. You know, it's not just running on, on a single tab. It's an extension which is extending the browser as a whole. So, you know, that certainly presents a sobering danger. Um, we know that, that Chrome has made policies. We've talked about this in the past where extensions need to have uh, some reason for, for performing this sort of behavior. They also need to be fully reverse engineerable 
by anybody who wants to see what a minified script is doing. You know, they need not to be obfuscating themselves uh, to an unusual degree. So anyway, the, the GitHub thread did note at the end that the great suspender has been removed from the Chrome Web Store. They, they said to recover your tabs, see issue number 526. It turns out this has been an issue in the past. They, they said the code in the GitHub repository is currently safe. The most recent tagged release happened before the transfer of ownership. And they wrote to use that version and avoid needing to finagle URLs, enable Chrome developer mode, download and extract a copy of the code, meaning from GitHub, then navigate to your extensions menu and select load unpacked extension. So if anybody has been inconvenient by, by, by this or you want the, the, the great uh, suspender, uh, it is still available. I guess that's sort of a side effect benefit of whoever it was who took this over never bothering to port their changes back to GitHub. Actually, they should have been created on GitHub and, and, and used from that. But anyway, let's hope that whoever purchased the extension lost money on the detail uh, and that they and others will be disincentivized from attempting to purchase and subvert other browser extensions. Uh, you know, what we've just witnessed is a worrisome reality of our current web browser ecosystem. Uh, I know that I and many of our listeners rely heavily on extensions, both for Chrome and Firefox, and I would never want to have to use browsers without them. But, you know, it is, you know, it, it is the fact that we're often using we're, we're using extensions that are you know developed by people who love them, uh, like the guy who did uBlock Origin, uh, Gorehill. You know he see who seems like a you know a grum <laughs> grumbly old uh, curmudgeon, uh, but I'm sure glad that you know he cares as much as he does, and and I appreciate his efforts. The second thing that happened in Chromeland was that on Thursday, Tenable and Microsoft both provided information about the otherwise undermentioned, to put it lightly, update to Chrome that occurred also on Thursday. Tenable's posting explained what they know, and I'll extract a couple bits from what they wrote. I have a link to their full uh, posting in the show notes. On February 4th, Google published a stable channel update for Chrome Desktop, Tenable wrote. This release contained a single security fix to address a critical zero-day vulnerability that had been exploited in the wild. The vulnerability is a heat buffer overflow vulnerability in Chrome's V8 engine, whose discovery is credited to Matthias Bulens. He reported the flaw to Google on January 24th. Google noted that they are, quote, aware of reports that an exploit for this vulnerability exists in the wild. They wrote, which we interpret to mean that in the wild exploitation attempts have been observed. Google's bug report for the vulnerability is unsurprisingly restricted to allow users time to apply the relevant patch meaning the update to Google. Uh, in an interesting bit 
in, in an interesting uh, timing, they said, this flaw was disclosed to Google just one day before a significant revelation from Google. On January 25th, Google's threat analysis group, TAG, published a blog posting detailing the discovery of an ongoing campaign, which we'll talk about in a minute. It's sort of really fascinating, conducted by nation state actors believed to be in North Korea, which is targeting security researchers who are interested in collaborating on vulnerability research. In other words, unwittingly collaborating. The report specifically mentioned that the threat actors circulated a link to their potential victims to a malicious website that led to successful exploitation on systems that were fully patched at the time for both Windows and Google Chrome. This was corroborated by Microsoft, which published their own blog post about the attacks, surmising that the Google Chrome Zero Day was likely used to target researchers, meaning North Korea had set up a full false flag operation targeting other security researchers. What Microsoft discovered and shares is amazing and kind of horrifying. Microsoft said, over the past several months, the threat analysis group has identified an ongoing campaign targeting security researchers working on vulnerability research and development at different companies and organizations. The actors behind this campaign, which we attribute to a government-backed entity based in North Korea, have employed a number of means to target researchers, which we will outline below. We hope this post will remind those in the security research community that they are targets of government-backed attackers and should remain vigilant when engaging with individuals they have not previously interacted with. Microsoft wrote, in order to build credibility and connect with security researchers, the actors established a fake research blog and multiple Twitter profiles to interact with potential targets. They've used these Twitter profiles for posting links to their blog, posting videos of their claimed exploits and for amplifying and retweeting posts from other accounts that they control. Their blog contains write-ups and analysis of vulnerabilities that they have publicly disclosed, including guest posts from unwitting legitimate security researchers likely in an attempt to build additional credibility with other security researchers. They said, while we are unable to verify the authenticity of the working status of all of the exploits that they have posted video of, in at least one case, the actors have faked the success of their claimed working exploit. On January 14th, 2021, the actors shared via Twitter a YouTube video they uploaded that proclaimed to exploit CVE 2021-1647, a recently patched 
Windows Defender vulnerability. In the video, they purported to show a successful working exploit that spawns a command shell, but a careful review of the video shows the exploit is fake. Multiple comments on YouTube identified that the video was faked and that there was not a working exploit demonstrated. After these comments were made, the actors used a second Twitter account, which, by the way, they also control, pretend, but pretending that they don't, to retweet the original post and claim that it was not a fake video. <laughs> the actors have been observed targeting specific security researchers by a novel social engineering method. After establishing initial communications, the actors would ask the targeted researcher if they wanted to, con to collaborate on vulnerability research together and then provide the researcher with a Visual Studio project. Within the Visual Studio project would be source code for exploiting the vulnerability <laughs> as well as an additional DLL that would be executed through Visual Studio build events. The DLL is custom malware that would immediately begin communicating with actor-controlled command, command and control domains. An example of the VS build event can be seen in the image below, and they, they provided that in their posting. In addition to targeting users via social engineering, we have also observed several cases where researchers have been compromised after visiting the actor's the, the, the malicious actor's blog. In these cases, the researchers followed a link on Twitter to a write-up hosted on blog.br0vvnn.io. And shortly thereafter, a malicious service was installed on the researcher's system and an in-memory backdoor would begin beaconing to an actor-owned command and control server. At the time of these visits, the victim systems were running fully patched and up-to-date Windows 10 and Chrome browser versions. At this time, we're unable to confirm the, the mechanism of compromise, but we welcome any information others might have. Chrome vulnerabilities, including those being exploited in the wild, that is ITW uh, in the wild, are eligible for reward payout under Chrome's vulnerability reward program. We encourage anyone who discovers a Chrome vulnerability to report that activity via the Chrome VRP submission process. And of course, note that it is now believed that this was just patched, that this was the just patched, patched Chrome Zero Day that was being used to compromise the systems of trusted security research collaborators. So they finished saying these actors have used multiple platforms to communicate with their potential targets, including Twitter, LinkedIn, Telegram, Discord, Keybase, and email. We are providing a list of known accounts and aliases below, which they did in their disclosure. They said, if you have communicated with any of these accounts 
or visited the actor's blog, we suggest you review your systems for the indicators of compromise, the IOCs provided below. To date, we have only seen these actors targeting Windows systems as a part of of this campaign. If you are concerned that you are being targeted, we recommend that you compartmentalize your research activities using separate physical or virtual machines for general web browsing, interacting with others believed to be in the research community, accepting files from third parties, and your own security research. So, wow. So here was a high-end, focused, deliberate, multi-month campaign launched by... It's believed people in, you know, malicious actors in North Korea that put together an entire fake front looking like a one of the growing number of security research groups who were then reaching out to the real research community, uh, opening up invitations to collaborate Uh, They were running a blog. They were faking videos of things that they had accomplished uh, for themselves, uh, engaging the research community and using two different methods in this case. One, a a malicious visual studio project with a, you know, that had an extra little DLL of malware that would launch uh, when you launch the project and then separately using a, a previously unknown at the time that was effective against fully patched Windows 10 and Chrome uh, as a zero day to compromise the systems of people who clicked on a link that was uh, posted in one of their Twitter feeds. So the <laughs> I guess the, uh, the, the moral of this one would be uh, you just can't be too careful. You know, security researchers hopefully uh, are sandboxing their own research systems. I would imagine they would be, uh, you know, off from the rest of their networks because, you know, they are going to be doing research that is highly vulnerable. I remember back in the day when I was first looking at viruses uh, on DOS systems back when viruses, you know, you know, lived on floppy disks because that was the only way they could go around. This was all pre-network oh, yeah. and we had a machine pre-internet. painted bright red uh, in the studio yeah. at uh, the screensavers that we would try things like Melissa on. Um, mm-hmm. And, it, of course, in those days, air-gapping a computer was pretty common because, you know, but this was air-gapped and bright red so that nobody would be tempted to use it. Yeah. It's a little harder now. Yep. So uh, our third story, um, uh, and this is really interesting. Uh, uh, This one was carried by every security-related news outlet last week. Uh, It's just sort of an interesting twist. The discovery of a unique use of Chrome's sync feature for command and control and data exfiltration. Also last Thursday, a Croatian security researcher who I'm certain would appreciate just being referred to by his initials BZ 
rather than have me attempt to pronounce his name, which has no vowels. Um, last Thursday, uh, uh, he discovered that a malicious Chrome extension was abusing the Chrome sync feature as a way to communicate with a remote command and control server um, to exfiltrate data from infected browsers. As we know, multiple Chrome web browsers, which are logged into the same Google account, will automatically share and synchronize um, their configuration settings, you know, tabs, favorites, extensions, browser history, and so forth. Each browser connects to the Google mothership to check in. And then Google hands out updates as needed to whichever other browsers may check in while logged into the same account. So what's sort of diabolically clever about this is that this communication, which will be encrypted under Google's own security certificates, because the Chrome browser is contacting, I think it's client4.google.com, uh, would typically go completely unnoticed by anyone. It would slip right through any corporate firewalls. Data could be encoded, for example, into long base64 encoded URL tails. And Google would simply send them out to other browsers that are logged into the same account. So this researcher... Uh, in Croatia, whose initials are BZ, said that the incident he that the incident he investigated found that attackers gained access to a victim's computer, but because the data they wanted to steal was inside an employee's portal, they downloaded a Chrome extension onto the user's computer and loaded it via the browser's developer mode that we were just talking about before for the, the great suspender. The extension, which posed as a security add-on from security firm Forcepoint, contained malicious code that abused Chrome's sync feature as a way to allow attackers to control the infected browser. In this way, the extension could be used as an exfiltration channel from inside corporate networks to an attacker's remotely located Chrome browser instance or as a way to remotely control the infected browser from afar, thus bypassing any local security defenses. Uh, BZ explained that blocking access to the Chrome Sync server at client4.google.com would not work because that domain is used for many other things, such as Chrome to detect an internet connection. So instead of doing that, BZ urges companies to use Chrome's enterprise features and group policy support to block and control what extensions can be installed in the browser to prevent the installation of rogue extensions like the one he investigated. And actually, I would say that would be a useful belt and suspenders approach if uh, and I haven't looked into this. But presumably, you know, we all have group policy uh, controls in our systems. And if it's possible to use group policy to block Chrome from installing anything like that you don't deliberately install, 
that would seem to be a, a useful thing to do for anyone who wanted to harden their their Chrome install. It's certainly useful in an enterprise environment, but it, it would probably be equally applicable for uh, individual users. And Leo, what's applicable for me is having a <laughs> sip of water. All right. Delio. We will get back to the uh, main event in just a second, but first a word from our sponsor. And I have to say, I got a packet yesterday from a home insurance company with our brand new policy in it. And I was really excited. Let me let me begin the story at the beginning. Uh, it was about three, four weeks ago, we got a notice from our home insurer. You know, we live in wildfire area, earthquake country. It's expensive to have insurance here. Uh, that they were going to raise our uh, home insurance by $8,000. <laughs> and uh, Lisa was just blue in the face. She said, this is ridiculous. This is appalling. Uh, that's when I downloaded Gabby, which is an iOS app. Really cool app. What, you know, what I told Lisa is, well, look, all right, uh, let's shop it. We can go and, and take our policy to a bunch of different sites, fill out huge, long forms. Uh, Gabby estimates it's about 1,100 keystrokes per website to say, I'd like a quote. And, you know, 40 agencies times 1,100 keystrokes. I could have written a novel in that amount of time. It's It's crazy. Instead, I just got Gabby, uh, and I answered a few simple questions, and they shop your auto insurance or your home insurance, I did both, to 40 of the top insurance providers, progressive, nationwide, travelers. It's really amazing. All you do is you link, now when I did this with the, with the home and auto, and somebody emailed me and said, they want me to link my insurance account, and there is a reason. Your current account, you link it in because that's how they get all the details. That's how you save all those keystrokes. They get everything from your existing policies. By the way, privacy policy is 100%. They don't do anything with it. They're just accessing that information so that they can then quote you. In most cases, you get quotes almost instantaneously, just a few minutes, and it matches the coverage you have. That's how they do it, because they know exactly what coverage you have. At this point, still, no cost, no obligation to you. If you want to move forward with one of the quotes, uh, the insurance company you selected, then we'll have to, and you know, they have underwriters, review your details, confirm the final price. It may involve a phone call, depends on the company. What Gabby's done, I think, and, and people who listen to this show, and you would appreciate this, Steve, and they've slowly gone through the insurers and encouraged them to create an API so that you can do this automatically. And by the way, the insurance industry not known for their forward thinking, you know, <laughs> ideas. They they don't this is this is for some of them was a real challenge, but gradually over time Gabby's convinced everybody to create an API so that you can quickly do this automatically with Gabby. Uh, you know, of course, it, as it was the case with us, they gave us a quote. Then when we, you know, I, I can't remember if Lisa talked. I think she talked to an insurance uh, adjuster or but we gave more details anyway. The quote changed a little bit and sometimes that happens. But the idea of doing this instead of taking the weeks it would have taken me and the 40,000 plus keystrokes it would take me to do this all in a few minutes. We just now we did this last week. We just got the policy today. We are thrilled. Here's another thing I really appreciated. They looked at both our home and auto. And they came back and said, you know what? 
you got the best price we could get. That's a very, you're getting a good deal. And that actually made me feel good. It was a nice way of knowing, yeah, we've got our, we're not overpaying for our auto insurance. Gabby customers on average save $961 a year on their car and home insurance. And we saved three times that. It's really remarkable. This is a way to keep an extra $961 in your pocket. And maybe more, as in our case. If they can't find you savings, as they did for me, they'll let you know. They're not selling insurance. That's not, that's not what they're doing. They're shopping you around, finding the best price for you. And, and then you make the deal with the insurance company. And I imagine that the, the way they make money is they get a little cut on that. Hey, it's worth it. They never sell your info. And I can verify this. No annoying spam or robocalls because I used another sponsor, MySudo, to create this Gabby account so that I was using a special phone number, special email address. It's been silent after once we got the policy. I haven't, and I, I will let you know, but they absolutely don't reuse this information. It is a great idea. You've probably seen the ads. They're very quick on TV. I wanted to explain a little bit more of how this works. And, you know, honestly, we were just trying it to see. But when we saw, when we saw what the savings, we, we got the policy yesterday. I'm thrilled. This is why they don't have an API. They don't want to encourage you to shop. They want you to take the deal that they offer you. They make it very difficult. Gabby makes it easy. You're probably overpaying on car and home insurance. See how much Gabby, G-A-B-I, can save you. Totally free, no obligation. You're not under contract with the insurance company until you go through the steps. And it's very clear, okay, this is the step where you're going to you know, pay them and, and accept it. They make it so easy. No risk. Try it. What, what do you got to lose? And I, you might have a lot to save. GABI.com slash security now. That way they'll know... You saw it here. That's important to me. And Steve, Gabby.com slash security now. I did it because I saw the ads on TV and I thought, well, you know, we can try it. Uh, but boy, am I glad I did. And I'm thrilled to be doing their ads now. Gabby.com slash security now. G-A-B-I. Give it a try. You've got nothing to lose and lots to save. Gabby, thank you for supporting the show. Yeah, I've seen their ads too, and I've never it, really paid you know, attention to what I was, asked so. him because you're talking to the uh, marketing guy. I said, You're the guy in the ads. He said, Yeah, I am. He said, The way it happened was they had their founder, who is, I think, Dutch. And so the first series of ads were, I created this Gabby to save your money. He had this very strong accent, which caught my attention. And, the, and then uh, they did market research, and this, and this guy, the CMO, said, you know what, uh, we've done the market research. People would probably trust it more if it weren't somebody. So it needs to be somebody kind of heavy set, and, you know, middle American, no accent. And they said, well, that's you. And so he's doing the ads. <laughs> he's a great guy. He's a fan, turns out he's a fan of the network. So uh, we're really glad to uh, have him on. And, and it really works. Anyway, enough of that. Back to you, Steve. So uh, while you were explaining about Gabby, I reached up and restarted those three machines. Oh, they're so blinking. Those watching uh, will be glad to know that the lights are Our flashing audience once again. It's really interesting. They're very focused, not just on the show, but on all of the details. So when my machine stops, or you know, yes, last week they said, "What's the what's the deal with Steve's lights? They're not blinking." <laughs> if I if this clock is not here, you know. They get all upset. Well, and Leo, I'm sure both of us recognize that all of the talking heads on TV now are are talking from their homes. I love and that. And so, 
So it's I really, you know, you like looking around. Yeah, like, I read oh, the books, yeah. see what the books are. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. I love doing that. And you know yeah. what? I hope we don't go back to the old way. Don't go to the studio. Everybody should just stay home. We yeah. got the technology. So uh, <laughs> following on the heels of this Chrome news, we have the, the, the little whoopsie that uh, Defender, Windows Defender, thinks Chrome is malware. Well, it kind of is. <laughs> yeah. I might not be completely with, wrong after those three the, stories. Yeah, with the, with the subhead of no good deed goes unpunished, no sooner had Google quickly updated Chrome last week to remove the zero-day flaw in its V8 engine, which, as we know, is being actively exploited in the wild to attack security researchers, than Microsoft's enterprise version of Windows Defender decided that Google's modifications were malicious. Oh, that's hysterical. The, the high-end, the uh, you know, Microsoft Defender Advanced Threat Protection, ATP, which is the commercial version of the otherwise ubiquitous Defender AV, which we're all using in our Windows machines, uh, and that's Microsoft's premier enterprise security solution, it was having a bad day and labeled Google's Browser update a Trojan, a backdoor Trojan. Based on Twitter reports posted by dismayed sysadmins, Defender ATP was detecting multiple files, which are part of last week's Chrome. It was version 88.04324.146. And I noticed I was already at 150, so they've tweaked it again since. Uh, they said it was containing a generic backdoor named, it was a PHP backdoor, php slash funvalget.a. Uh, though this might have normally been met with somewhat more calm, of course, you know, in this case, Defender's alerts raised some alarm and quite a bit of stir in enterprise environments due to the recent multiple software supply chain attacks that we've all been made quite aware of recently. So sysadmins were awaiting a formal statement from Microsoft to confirm that the detection was indeed a false positive and nothing to worry about. Fortunately, the built-in, no-charge, free version of Microsoft Defender AV that we all have in our personal Windows 7, 8, and 10 machines was not suspicious of this new release of Chrome, which on one hand is fortunate or it would have been a far more widespread mess. But it does make one wonder about the detection differential between Microsoft's commercial and the consumer AVs. You know, why exactly did the enterprise AV freak out whereas the consumer AVs remained quiet? You know, are, are, does that mean we're getting less protection on the consumer AVs? Uh, you know, anyway, Microsoft did later confirm that this FunValget Trojan, PHP Trojan, uh, for those Chrome files were indeed a false positive due to what Microsoft termed, quote, an automation error, unquote. I guess that's technically true. You know, whatever the heck that means. And I suppose they, they needed to call it something. 
uh, because calling it what it really was, a false positive, probably couldn't get past the PR folks at Microsoft. They're like, no, 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 no. You can't call anything a false positive. Come up with a, you know, some other name. Uh, well, that would be what, you know, if, I guess it's kind of an automation error. Oh, yeah, that's fine. No one will know what that means. So, you know, I should mention uh, that over the past few years, I have had to exclude my Windows, my local Windows Defender from poking into many of my own development directories. Unless I do that, shortly after I build a new executable from source, Defender will slide up a red warning from the lower right of the screen saying, not to worry, it's all good. Defender has found and removed the threat that just appeared. Of course, that's my own code, just freshly built from source. So it couldn't be any cleaner. And recently, um, they've all been, the, like the work that I've been doing has all been DOS executables. And I noted previously that if, you know, if any malicious Trojan were actually to find itself running in DOS, which it probably couldn't even do these days, it would not be happy. What must be upsetting Defender, because it, like I'm having now to whitelist like all the work that I'm doing, it must be that it's the lack of digital signatures on my freshly built exes. Um, we've seen through experimental evidence that Defender now places a lot of weight upon the reputation of the certificates which sign today's executables. It's gotten to the point where it's difficult to keep Defender from complaining when any executable is not signed. That and must be know, a problem for all developers. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it, it absolutely must be. I, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, it, these they're, things they're have They're exes, they're not dot coms? Yeah, they're exes. And, you know, and, and which is, I'm sure, what Defender looks at and immediately digs into. And so, you know, we, you know, think about how we know how many bazillion different, uh, you know, m malicious things they're looking for. And so it's just going to be the case that that somewhere in an exe, there's going to be a collision of some little fingerprint that matches enough to upset Defender. And then it looks and sees, oh, and look, there's no signature. Well, this, you know, let, let we, you know, when in doubt, protect the user. And of course, today we know that Windows refuses, Windows itself, the OS, refuses to load any unsigned device drivers into its kernel. De device driver signing is no longer optional. Developers can force the issue by disabling Windows driver signing enforcement, as it's called. Um, but I'll bet that the way things are going, we're not far from the day when Windows will be elevating that requirement to the desktop. And now, boy, that'll cause a, a big well, Apple uproar. Apple does that because already. Apple's yes. already doing that. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think we're far away from that in Windows. Yeah. You know, there might be something like a UAE dialog that users are forced to push past whenever they wish to run any unsigned executable. And that would, of course, from a social engineering standpoint, that would tend to cause developers to 
you know, start Sign, signing their sign. their exes. So the problem is certificates are not free. Yeah, you know, there is right. no let you know, there there there's no let's sign equivalent of let's encrypt. Apple has two layers. They have signing and notarizing, and they will not open an app uh that's not notarized unless you know, you have to know how to jump through hoops. They it's not even a UAE or UAC up escalation. You have to actually jump through hoops to get the thing open. Um, their gatekeeper is very aggressive. Oh yeah, UAE. I mean UAC. UAC. I don't know. Did you say UAE? I said you. I'm I did. Said I, UAE. Have, I have UAE in my oh, show. Okay. Notes. UAC. <laughs> All right. We both we both got it wrong. Uh, I, you know, I I don't want to derail you, but it must be. How do you develop a, a program like Spinrate, which is a DOS program? You know, the normal cycle for development is you, you know, you write, compile, and run. Write, compile, run. But for you, you can't. You're writing and compiling on Windows, right? You're not right, or are you working in DOS? No, I am. I, I'm testing under Win, uh, under DOS, but I am writing and assembling. And it was. It, it turns out it was surprisingly difficult to do this. I bet because I have some tools which are have been abandoned, and they're they're yeah. 16-bit tools. Yeah, I found this thing called VDOS. You know, there's like DOSBox and there's, you know, and of course there, there's um, uh, VirtualBox and, and there, there, there's a bunch of things. But there's oh. one funky thing called VBox XE. And, <clears throat> so it lets and you run DOS in a virtual machine. Yes. Oh. Yes. And, I'm, and it's funny because when you launch it, it will read a config sys and an auto exec <laughs> bat. Of it will. From from your current directory. Oh, so what I did. So what I did was you automatically I, launched Spinrite. Well, no, no, no. I'm no. here. I'm I'm just building. So I have. I think it, it, I have to. I have to do my linking. I I, I use a 16-bit linker oh, in order to link 16-bit DOS code. Wow. And then I use a a program to process my symbol files for the DOS debugger. Which is only 16-bit code. Right. It was called Periscope, and I it remember, was I remember it was written by yeah. a guy named Brett Salter, yeah. who unfortunately passed away uh, a few years ago. I I, re I reached out to Brett to to say, hey, believe it or not, Brett, I'm still using Periscope, and it turns out uh, he's not still breathing oxygen. I, I remember his name. Wow. Yep. Yep. And then and then I also contacted uh, Bob Smith. Who was the author of 386 to the Max? That was oh my, my favorite memory manager. Yes, you're using that from back then. <laughs> yep, and and Bob is still around. Wow. Yeah. So, so oh, that's interesting. So you, that makes sense. So at least you can do it all on the same machine. Yes. So I'm doing it all on the same machine. Um, and then the, the the problem I recently had was that in order to be in DOS, I want to debug with symbols. So the DOS box needs access. I mean, I, I want to debug with source. Right. So the DOS box needs access to the source code. And the symbol tables. So yeah. for yeah, a yeah. while, I was, I was loading the whole Windows for Workgroups 3.1 <laughs> uh, IP stack in DOS and, and running a Windows for Workgroup client wow. in order. And then I would use share to map the the development directory into the C drive under DOS so that the code running there could see the source code on my Windows machine 
from NDOS. Wow. Well, that all worked. That's how I developed read speed. Uh, that all worked until I started working on Spinrite 6.1 because Spinrite itself is way bigger. You know, read speed was 19K. Right. And so that was no problem. Spinrite is is a couple hundred K. And so the problem was the full DOS network stack took up way too much memory along with the the debugger and its symbol table, which was itself 160K. Uh-huh. So there wasn't enough room. Fortunately, one of the guys in the in the uh, GRC Spinrite dev group had done some work and played around with using a packet driver. And, and it, instead of using the whole DOS, the whole the TCP IP stack and then Windows for Workgroups 3.1, there are packet drivers for all these old network adapters. And the packet driver is super tiny, but it, all it is is just packets. So it turns out someone created, um, there's an FTP server, an FTP client, but also the equivalent of wget. There's an HTTP get command, which is transient. So now my build process under Windows, whenever I do a build and it's just a, an Alt-A and, you know, assembling, it just takes, it's like instantaneous. Sure. So I just use it for, for, for syntax oh, checking. Oh, yeah, all the I time. Just, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm building constantly. Yeah. Every time I do that, it zips all of my assembly code and the header files into a, a sr.zip. And then when I switch over and run the debugger, the act of starting the debugger launches the HTTP get in order to pull using the packet driver. Now I've got 400K of RAM because I got rid of all of the, stack. the IP yeah, stack yeah. and Windows for work groups. So it pulls the zip <laughs> over, uses PK PK unzip, oh, yeah. old, Phil, Phil Katz's Cat, yep, old yep. unzip <laughs> yeah. in order to unzip the files into an SM directory in DOS and then the debugger says, oh, look, here's all the source code. So wow. it is, b- believe me, Leo, when I move, when I finally say goodbye to DOS and the BIOS and I switch to Spinrite 7, where I'll be operating under, you know, a 32-bit mode. I mean, it's just, it's barely possible to still <laughs> develop this way. I mean, I'm having to, like, get very creative. I'm impressed as to, hell. That's amazing. In order to do that. That's amazing. Wow. But it, it does work. Yeah. See what he does for us, folks. Nice job, Steve. <laughs> Thank you. So anyway, um, we do have another critical WordPress plugin problem. And I have a, a suggestion for anyone. I, I will end this with a suggestion for anyone who is still using WordPress. In this case, we have now more than 800,000, huh, 0.8 million WordPress sites vulnerable to several I got I gave myself the hiccups by not breathing while I was just talking yeah, I, I don't so blame you about, I you know so people, people say why is Steve still using those old operating systems now you know why you don't want to you don't want to go to Windows 10 because <laughs> it's just gonna what a nightmare it's gonna create yeah I, I I under XP not everything still worked <laughs> Because that you know it still ran 16-bit code. I was still using Brief 
Uh, I you know. know. At, at, I know. As, as my as my programmer's editor back then. Well, your fingers so, knew the way. Yeah, yeah, and with, with word star keystrokes because that yep. was like. The, the right little, way to do little it back footnote then. on that: the uh, creator of MicroPro, the company distributed WordStar, Seymour Rubinstein, died last week in mm. in his late eighties, I think. But he was kind of a legend down here in Sausalito as the man who put WordStar in the market. Yeah, boy, that was the word processor to use. Yeah. All right, hiccups are gone. Um, okay, so yes, thank you. I scared uh, you with WordStar. More, <laughs> more than eight hundred thousand WordPress sites. I have a all share a a very popular p- plugin called NextGen Gallery. NextGen Gallery allows sites to accept uploads of photos in batch quantities to import metadata and edit image thumbnails. So apparently 800,000 WordPress sites thinks that's a good idea. Whatever they're doing, they're wanting to use this plugin. The bad news is that researchers discovered two CSRF cross-site request for uh, cross-site request forgery flaws. Uh, one is critical, and the other is high severity. Uh, a patch was released to address the flaws in version three point five point zero of Next Gen Gallery. So, first, if anyone who's listening to this, is using NextGen Gallery on their WordPress site, make sure that that you have, you're running 3.5.0 or later. Uh, it's been available since the middle of last December, so the, res- the, re- the researchers had responsibly waited until yesterday, Monday the 8th, before publicly disclosing the details of the flaw, which are now public. So that ups the ante on anyone's need to make sure they're running the, the, the most recent version. Ram Gall, who is with WordFence, uh, who we'll be talking about in a minute because I think this thing is worth taking a look at. He wrote in their disclosure of the vulnerabilities yesterday of, quote, he said, a critical severity vulnerability that could lead to remote code execution and stored cross-site scripting uh, vulnerabilities. Exploitation of these vulnerabilities could lead to a site takeover, malicious redirects, spam injection, phishing, and much more. So his description of the vulnerability demonstrates, you know, the competence of these guys. He said, we initially reached out to the plugins publisher, Imagely, the same day and provided full disclosure the next day on December 15th, 2020. Imagely sent us patches for review on December 16th and published the patched version 3.5.0 on December 17th. So you couldn't ask for any better, you know, find, notify, full disclosure, patch, and update availability. Of course, the only thing missing from this cycle is, you know, of those 800,000 people using it, because it is inherently publicly exposed, how many of them are now running 3.5.0? Ram Gall said, WordFence premium users received firewall rules protecting against these vulnerabilities on December 14th, 2020. 
sites still running the free version of WordFence, which is what I'm going to be recommending by the end of this, received these rules 30 days later on January 13th, but still a full month before public disclosure. Uh, well, no, wait a minute. Public disclosure was yesterday, so three weeks. He said, Next Gen Gallery, this this uh, plugin, is a popular WordPress plugin designed to create highly responsive image galleries. It is clear the plugin's developer took care to integrate security in the code of the plugin. Next Gen Gallery has a single security function. It's the function name is is underscore authorized underscore request that is used to protect most of its settings. And I've got a link to the full disclosure in the show notes where he shows this PHP function. He said this function integrated both a capability check and a nonce check into a single function for easier application throughout the plugin. Unfortunately, a logic flaw in the is underscore authorized underscore request function meant that the nonce check would allow requests to proceed if the nonce parameter was missing rather than invalid. Whoops. This opened up a number of opportunities for attackers to exploit a cross-site request forgery. One feature of NextGen Gallery is the ability for administrators to upload custom CSS files to be used to style galleries. While the file uploaded had to end with the .css extension, and you know where this is going, folks, it was possible to upload arbitrary code with double extensions. In other words, file.php.css. While these files would only be executable on certain configurations, such as Apache slash mod PHP with an app handler directive, this could still result in remote code execution on any vulnerable configurations. Unfortunately, he wrote, it is also possible to achieve code execution even on configurations not vulnerable to double extensions. NextGen Gallery has a separate feature that allows users to specify how galleries are viewed via a legacy templates feature. Why does that sound scary? Which also uses the is authorized request function for security. Thus, it was possible to set various album types to use a template with the absolute path of the file uploaded in the previous step or perform a directory traversal attack using the relative path of the uploaded file, regardless of that file's extension through a CSRF attack. This would result in local file inclusion and remote code execution, as the uploaded file would then be included and executed whenever the selected album type was viewed on the site. Any JavaScript included in the uploaded file would also be executed, resulting in a cross-side scripting problem. As a reminder, once an attacker achieves remote code execution on a website, they have effectively taken over that site. Cross-side scripting can likewise be used to take over a site if a logged-in administrator visits a page running a malicious injected script. This attack would likely require some degree of social engineering 
as an attacker would have to trick an administrator into that is this just this final aspect into clicking the link that submitted crafted requests to perform these actions. Additionally, performing these actions would require two separate requests, though this would be trivial to implement, and we were able to do so during our testing. Finally, the site would require at least one album to be published and accessible to the attacker. So that's what they posted, and I'm impressed by these word fence people. We've run across them several times in the past year as WordPress problems have been receiving increased scrutiny both from attackers and from security researchers. So I'm glad that I am no longer uh, running WordPress on any of my own servers. But I understand that others may have little choice. As I noted above, WordFence offers both a free and paid version of their WordPress firewall. And if I had to be running WordPress, I would give WordFence a serious look. They really do appear to be on the ball and quite worthwhile. Uh, you know, since these plugins that appear, it, it, it is plugins that appear to be causing all of this trouble. If you happen to be running WordPress lean with no plugins, then I would say it's a safe step to skip it. Um, but if you are a plugin user and you just can't resist adding goodies to your WordPress installation, then I would definitely add one more. I would add WordFence and then consider what their pricing structure looks like and whether it might be, depending upon your use of WordPress, if it's, you know, if it's mission critical, um, I think they were $99 a year for their their full paid, you know, single site protection. Uh, and having these guys watching your back, I think makes uh, a lot, an awful lot of sense if you're a, a, uh, a word fence user. Um, I did want to just check in on DDoS attacks. Uh, we haven't talked about DDoS for a long time, but last Thursday, the site NetScout posted a notice about the abuse of internet exposed Plex media servers and their SSDP protocol, which of course we've spoken of often. Uh, SSDP is, uh, 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 I'm looking for it here in the notes. You know, it, it, it's the uh, UPnP uh, protocol, um, but I'm blanking on what it is. Oh, I'll run across it here in my notes. Uh, anyway, uh, we've not talked about DDoS for a while. Uh, what NetScout wrote, I thought was interesting. They said Plex Media Server is a personal media library, of course, and we know, and streaming system which runs on modern Windows, Mac OS, and Linux OS. I've got it running in my Drobos for a number of applications. They said, along with variants customized for special purpose platforms, such as network-attached storage devices, external RAID storage, digital media players, etc. They said, upon startup, Plex probes the local network using the, uh, it's called G'day Mate, GDM, Network Service Discovery Protocol, to locate other compatible media devices and streaming clients. It also appears to make the use of 
SSDP probes to locate universal plug-and-play gateways on broadband internet access routers, which have SSDP enabled. So once again, this is another reason for always disabling SSDP, you know, the the public side universal plug-and-play, unless you know you need it. They said when a universal plug-and-play gateway, UPnP, is discovered via this methodology, Plex attempts to utilize NAT PMP to instantiate dynamic NAT forwarding rules on the broadband internet access router. In other words, to open a port to itself so that it is available and discoverable on the internet. And I have no idea why. You know, this is just insane. On January 7th of this year, Baidu Labs, in a Chinese-language web blog post, described a UDP reflection amplification DDoS attack vector leveraging Plex's media server instances running versions of the Plex software prior to 1.21. In early February 2021, NetScout Arbor were notified that reflection amplification DDoS attacks were were appeared to be leveraging abusable Plex media server instances which were actively taking place on the public internet. Okay, so first of all, so the Plex media server has this functionality where when it comes up, it will check with the gateway to see if your router has UPnP enabled, as they typically do now, because, you know, if it's, you know, it's a feature we can advertise, like all of those uh, ridiculous uh, protocol gateways that I talked about disabling last week. So in this case, the, you know, the, the, the web application uh, protocol gateways, in this case, it will find typically a universal plug and play gateway, use uh, SSDP, sim- Simple Service Discovery Protocol, to um, to talk to it and arrange to map a port through to itself, presenting itself on the public internet. Because what could possibly go wrong? According to an announcement published on Plex's website on February 5th, Plex Media Server Instances, which have either been deployed on a public-facing network DMZ or in an internet data center, or with manually configured port forwarding rules which forward specific UDP ports from the public internet to devices running Plex Media Server, or which have uh, are behind a router with UPnP operating, can potentially be abused as part of possible DDoS attacks. So at least Plex is aware of this. The problem is that how many Plex users are aware of this? They said these actions can have the effect of exposing a Plex UPnP-enabled service registration responder to the general Internet, where it can be abused to generate reflection amplification DDoS attacks. In order to differentiate this particular attack vector from generic SSDP reflection amplification, it has been designated as Plex Media SSDP or PM SSDP. To date, 
<laughs> and get this, approximately 37,000 abusable PM SSDP reflectors amplifiers have been identified on the public internet. So yes, it's the default, right? By default, it reaches out and checks for universal plug and play. By default, consumer routers have that enabled. By default, it will create a mapping back to itself. And as a consequence, 37,000 of these Plex media servers are poking them, their, their, their nose out onto the internet. And now they're of interest to attackers. They may not be able to log on to them or care what's there, but there is a server which they're able to bounce packets, you know, DDoS traffic off of. And being SSDP, it is UDP, which means you don't have to have a TCP handshake. You can UDP, as we know, is perfectly spoofable. So you're able to lie about your source IP, send a packet there, and the the that device will bounce a larger packet back to presumably you, but if you've spoofed your IP to your DDoS attack target. So they said amplified PMSSDP DDoS attack traffic consists of SSDP HTTP slash U, meaning an HTTP protocol over UDP responses sourced from ports 32414 and 32410 or abusable Plex media server instances and directed towards attack targets. Each amplified response a, a packet ranges from 52 bytes to 281 bytes in size for an average amplification factor of about 4.68 to 1. So not a huge amplifier, but there's 37,000 of them sitting there on the Internet just hoping you're going to send a UDP packet off of them that they can increase in size and bounce toward your target. They said observed single vector. We got So we're going to have the term single vector and multi-vector now is the jargon of, of uh, DDoS attacks. Observed single vector PM SSDP reflection amplification DDoS attacks, attacks range in size from about 2 gigabits to 3 gigabits. Multi-vector, meaning 2 to 10 vectors, and omni-vector, which is considered 11 or more vectors, meaning um, where vectors are, are different things that packets are bounced off of. So the PM SSDP would be one vector among many. So if it's a, if it's attacks are only based on PM SSDP, that is the Plex media server, those attach to attacks are typically around two to three gig. But there are multi-vector, two to 10 vectors, and omni-vector, 11 or more vector attacks, which incorporate now PMSSDP as one of their multiple vectors because, again, 37,000, why not? Those range from the low tens of gigabits per second up to 218 gigabits per second. 
So that is to say one-fifth, more than one-fifth of a terabit per second. They said, this is NetScout, as is routinely the case with newer DDoS attack vectors. It appears that after an initial period of employment by advanced attackers with access to uh, bespoke DDoS attack infrastructure, PM SSDP has been weaponized and added to the arsenals of so-called booter stressor DDoS for hire services, you know, booter as being booted off the Internet, um, placing it within the reach of the general attacker population. They said to date, more than 5,500 PM SSDP, meaning single vector reflection amplification DDoS attacks have been observed on the public Internet, leveraging approximately 15,000 distinct abusable PMSSDP reflector amplifiers, meaning approximately 15,000 distinct Plex Media servers. They said it should be noted that a single vector PMSSDP reflection attack, uh, um, attack of two to three gigs in size is often sufficient to have a significant negative impact on the availability of targeted networks, servers, and services. The incidence of both single-vector and multi- or omni-vector attacks leveraging PMSSDP has increased significantly since November of 2020, indicating its perceived utility to attackers. In other words, they've added the Plex Media servers to their bag of tricks for these omni-vector, multi-vector attacks because, again, you got tens of thousands of them, so why not? And I'll just finish with the question, or answering the question, just how prevalent have DDoS, DDoS attacks become these days? To answer the question, Bleeping Computer opened an email dialogue with Richard Hummel, who's NetScout's manager of threat intelligence. Richard wrote that, quote, the total number of Plex Media SSDP attacks from January 1st to present day clocked in at approximately 5,700 compared to the uh, more than 11 million attacks in total we saw during the same time frame. That was from January 1st of 2020. So, uh, that's, what, a year and a month, or a year and a month and a half. 11 million DDoS attacks. So, wow, there are plenty of them. Um, three more new vulnerabilities have been discovered in SolarWinds software, which I'm going to talk about, Leo, after our third and final sponsor break. Indeed, no problem. I'm actually really interested in the SCADA story. Um, uh -huh. There's another story that you might be interested in. Uh, apparently, the uh, defendant in a murder trial has uh, demanded to be able to examine the source code of the DNA tracking app used 
uh, in him against him in evidence, DNA matching app. And uh, the judge has approved it. It's 170,000 lines of MATLAB code. So that's going to be fun. (laughs) But, you know, it's actually good. I mean, of course, that's part of the evidence against you. It's a black box. You should be able to examine it. I don't know. They'll have to hire an expert who understands MATLAB pretty well and works fast. It'll slow the trial down. Yeah, it'll slow the trial down a lot. (laughs) Uh, but and the company that creates the uh, DNA uh, software says, "Hey, that's proprietary. You can't you can't see that." The judge said, "Well, but if, if we're going to convict a guy of murder, we better be able to look based at on it. what your app is saying." Yeah, yeah. and there have been historically there've been app, uh, problems with other uh, DNA apps. So this episode of Security Now brought to you by Worldwide Technologies and Checkpoint. Uh, Lisa and I, Lisa was wearing a sweater this morning. She said, I got this for our trip to St. Louis, our last trip in our whole lives. Back in March, almost a year ago, we went out to see Worldwide Technologies Advanced Technology Center. What a cool, cool place that is. Worldwide Technologies uh, provides enterprise technologies, consulting, app development. They do so many things to help uh, their customers uh, navigate this challenging world today. They also help with your security strategy. WWT offers security solutions and services to protect your business. Attackers are constantly, you know, they're like sharks. They have to keep moving. They're constantly updating their strategies. And their victims, frankly, often are not. I hope that's not you. WWT can change that if it is. They'll help your organization prepare and combat the next-gen threats and continually update as those threats change. To do this, you've got to have a company that has the vision, the services, the capabilities to deliver the security controls you need to reduce the risk for your organization. I can say without fear that that's WWT. Without fear is a good good name for what they do because... These guys are threatening your livelihood, your reputation. They could cost you millions. Not WWT, the bad guys. WWT can protect you. Their team provides resources and platforms that, 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 that lock things down. With over three decades of experience, they know they have a proven track record to truly help you succeed. I'll give you some examples. One of them is a large healthcare organization. They, were, they wanted to move as many healthcare organizations uh, due to their to a certified electronic health record technology. But before they did, wisely, they wanted a security risk assessment to make sure that this was safe. You know, they have an obligation with HIPAA, but also just a moral obligation to protect patient records. So WWT came in. Their consultants used expert knowledge, state-of-the-art tools, in-depth analysis, skilled training and repetition with the staff. They did a full assessment. You know what they found, actually? If you listen to this show, you could probably guess. They found out 90% of the vulnerabilities on this system, and they found some, but 90% of them could be fixed by putting in a comprehensive systematic approach for patching. <laughs> and that, But that's what they did. And I think in enterprise, you don't want to just guess. You don't want to say, well, I bet this will work. You want to know. And that's what WWT does. They worked with a retail bank. Actually, multi-branches, big, big company to help them achieve their primary goal. They wanted to create an infrastructure that could survive, well, prevent if possible, and if not, survive a catastrophic cybersecurity event. 
And WTWT did it. They came in, they moved in with the knowledge they've got, the skills, the tools. They reduced system outages by 40%. And, and what's funny is they also saved the company money. They were able to do infrastructure automation that saved this retail bank ongoing cost savings of 48% just by putting in the automation. They cover it all. Security, strategy, a holistic approach that helps you connect your organization's business goals and objectives to technical solutions to reduce the risk your organization faces. Endpoint security, improving both visibility and compliance, defending at the edge, network security, protecting network traffic while decreasing your attack surface, improving threat detection, reducing overall cyber risk. You know, I think a lot of CIOs and IT folks listen to this show trying to do that. And and I'm bravo. I, I'm thrilled you do. But, you know, you don't have to do it all on your own. You can get some help, and WWT is there. Identity and access management, zero trust architectures. I bet you've been thinking about implementing that. Google's made a lot of noise about that, the idea that, you know, everybody on the network is a potential threat in or outside the network. And it, and it, it relies on strong identity management, encryption, and most importantly, segmentation. Steve, you talked about micro-segmentation to thwart the most advanced attacks. This is WWT. See how WWT, with the help of Checkpoint, can protect your business assets and intellectual property with a holistic security approach. This is something you need. And you can find out more. You can take a look at the ATC like Lisa and I did. You can get all the resources they offer when you go to WWT.com slash twit. Get started. Create an account. Learn more. WWT.com slash twit. See a lot more testimonials, too. There's a lot of uh, very interesting customer uh, case studies that will tell you, it will show you really what WWT can do. Time to let worldwide technology help you. You don't need to go it alone. WWT.com slash twit. Worldwide technology delivering digital outcomes and modernizing IT infrastructure. And, uh, Lisa's going to keep that sweater and we're going to wear it back to St. Louis the next time we get out there. WWT.com slash twit. Back to you, Steve. Very cool. So three more new vulnerabilities have been discovered in SolarWinds software. What? Yeah. Um, I hope this podcast listeners are aware of the extremely disturbing fact that we keep encountering instances of, of what I'll term the principle of wherever we look, we discover new problems. Um, today, problems are being discovered in two ways. First, the old-fashioned way, where we discover malware in some system, then reverse engineer the malware to discover how it got in. And uh, we looked last week at the extreme measures the SolarWinds hackers went to in order to avoid exactly that form of reverse engineering. Remember, they they would like worked to decouple the execution of the malware with the way it got into the system. The new modern way of finding vulnerabilities is apparently simply by looking closely at pretty much anything and discovering that, oh, look. It's full of security weaknesses. Who knew? Uh, it's this new second reality that has turned vulnerability discovery into a potential career. You know, just find some company that has the wisdom to offer bounties for the discovery of their bugs. 
then take a close look at their code. And before long, you can probably use cash to buy yourself a new car. Um, last week, another case illustrating this disur disturbing truth just came to light thanks to the many researchers who have been looking more closely for the first time ever at the code being shipped by solar winds. Of course, we know what motivated them to do to do so. They, you know, the whole industry took a look at solar. The whole security industry took a look at solar winds code to figure out what the heck. So, Trustwave's most recent security labs blog, posted last Wednesday, was titled <laughs> "Full System Control with New Solar Winds Orion Based and Serve You." FTP vulnerabilities. <clears throat> for anyone interested, I got the link in the show notes for the full posting. I'll just excerpt two bits from it. Martin Rachmanov posted in the first person saying, in this blog, I will be discussing three new security issues that I recently found in several SolarWinds products. All three are severe bugs with the most critical one allowing remote code execution with high privileges. To the best of TrustWave's knowledge, none of the vulnerabilities were exploited during the recent SolarWinds attacks or in any in-the-wild attacks. However, given the criticality of these issues, we recommend that affected users patch as soon as possible. We have purposely left out specific proof-of-concept code in this posting in order to give SolarWinds users a longer margin to patch. But we will post an update to this blog that includes the proof-of-concept code on February 9th. Okay, now, he didn't give anyone much time. This was posted last Wednesday. Today is Tuesday the 9th. And, to you know, sure as... Sure as anything, <laughs> the proof of concept code has been added to the blog. So it's now public. Yet another set of new ways of exploiting the SolarWinds code that was current as of last week. <clears throat> there are now public proof of concepts for the following disturbing three new vulnerabilities. SolarWinds Orion Platform, we have CVE 2021-25274, and they're sequentially numbered 275 and 276. The first one, improper use of Microsoft Message Queue could allow any remote unprivileged user the ability to execute any arbitrary code with the highest privilege. <laughs> Okay, it doesn't get any worse than that, right? Any unprivileged user, the ability remotely to execute any arbitrary code with the highest privilege. The next one, SolarWinds credentials are stored in an insecure manner that could allow any local users, despite privileges, to take complete control of the SolarWinds Orion database, which is that's what its credential store is what it is. From there, one can steal information or add a new admin-level user 
to be used inside SolarWinds Orion products, essentially neutering all of its authentication, right? And third, SolarWinds serve you FTP for Windows. Any local user, regardless of privilege, can create a file that can define a new serve you FTP admin account with full access to the C root drive. This account can then be used to log in via FTP and read or replace any file on the drive. <laughs> this is unbelievable. So it's really not here my intention to single out solar winds. You know, yes, they're currently and deservedly in the hot seat, but we would be wrong to assume that we just happen to be finding all manner of serious problems with the only company whose offerings have recently been closely scrutinized, right? You know, the only sane assumption, until we learn otherwise, would be that the software published and in use widely by many other similar entities would crumble just as quickly if and when it were to be subjected to a similar level of close expert scrutiny. The entire industry just assumed that SolarWinds was sufficiently good and careful about network security in the beginning, you know, which is what they were selling after all, that their, their whole offering is a, is, a, is a security product. You know, and it probably said that somewhere on their website, you know, that it was very secure right next to their customer list, which has since been taken down, as I noted before. So because such close expert scrutiny is expensive, no one is doing that to most of the industry's software. There are exceptions like web browsers, which we, we talk about constantly, that are very intensely scrutinized because they're such a high-profile target. But we now believe that highly skilled and talented Russian attackers were caught having closely scrutinized SolarWinds systems and code. But the evidence begs the question, what other software companies work has this same group also examined closely? And what did they find? Any sane person looking at the evidence would have to think with all the problems that are being found in SolarWinds products, it's probably not the case that there are not other similar products in other places that have not been carefully examined. You know, we talk about high-profile companies. You know, Cisco has constant problems with their stuff because people are looking at them. But there are many other companies that are like SolarWinds, that are widely deployed, widely used, and no one is looking at their stuff. The problem is bad guys may have an incentive to be doing just that. Good guys don't have the incentive, you know. Good guys are busy doing other things. So I will close the loop uh, with three bits of feedback from our listeners. Uh, uh, 
NDOM91, N-D-O-M-91, who has a Twitter account and tweets under that moniker, said, at SGGRC, Steve, I love you, your work, and the show. But for the love of God, it's called lib, like libertine, and not lib, like library. See, it is a library, though. I know. I call it lib, too, and but I don't know if there's a correct pronunciation. What's his... Assertion. How he does, says, correct? Referring, he, he's referring to the to the Lib Gcrypt segment in Security Now last week, 804. Oh, you've always said Lib, though. I have always said Lib. Yeah, because it's I've short for library. Also said, I've also always said GIF, not right. GIF. I've always so, said Lib only because that's how I've always read it, like Lib Gcrypt. Yeah, and I've always said it live because it's a library. But who's, it's not a library. Who's the definitive? I didn't go to the library. I didn't go to the library <laughs> as a kid in in elementary school. Who's the I def- went to the who's, library. Who's the guy who so, des- determines this? There's no. Yeah, I always. I'll tell you what. I've always said because we're saying it out loud. In many cases, for the first time, anybody said it out loud, <laughs> except in private conversations. Oh, we get to decide what it's what it is. Yes, Lori has formal medical training. I'm trying to pronounce medical terms that I've only ever read, right. and she's constantly correcting me, right. saying, uh, uh, "Honey, right. it's uh, pronounced this way." It's like, "Oh, okay, fine." I've always said like yeah. lib sodium or lib gcrypt, but you know, to each his own. I've never, I wouldn't correct you. I don't think that that's anyway. If anybody else is like <laughs> desperately upset with me for saying libgcrypt, you've just had your day. That's the end of it. I'm not changing, <laughs> but at least it's been aired. Meanwhile, Dave Strickler, uh, tweeting from at strictdd, said, you seem to be sending mixed signals on this week's SN. In the past, you've indicated that everything should have an auto-update mechanism. This week... It sounds like you don't trust them. Is it just Notepad++ you don't trust? Or is it because it prompts to update, whereas Chrome does it in the background? And David, you are absolutely right. This is one of those situations, I don't know what catch number it is. I don't, it's not exactly 22. Um, you know, things that are bad should be updated. Uh, things that are good should not be updated because they might go bad. How's that? Anyway, there's no good answer. It's, you know, we're, we're all screwed, basically. But then, actually, that would be a, been a great name for the podcast, Leo, wouldn't it? Lib Welcome G-Crypt. to We're All Screwed, <laughs> podcast number 805. Well, it's a little late for that. <laughs> <laughs> like Might be hard now. to get advertisers. Yeah. Um, so, finally, AndyMan7, tweeting, uh, from at Man7Andy, says, Hello, Steve, big fan of Security Now. I recall you mentioning a remote desktop management tool on one of the shows, but can't remember the name. Would you help remind me what that was and if you have any recommendations for a safer tool for IT people to do remote sessions to PCs? Okay, I'm glad you asked, Andy Man. The tool is simply called Remote Utilities. It is at www.remoteutilities.com and I continue to be so impressed with it. Lori uses it constantly, literally continually, daily 
to manage the array of remote laptops which are being used by her clients who are doing uh, at-home neurofeedback training. My tech support guy, Greg, who has a computer repair consultancy business on the side, has completely switched over to using it and has hundreds of machines under remote management. And I'm increasingly using the system to manage several of my own machines. It is an absolute win. The other thing I love about it is that it is purchased once and is not a subscription. And they offer a free license. They said, our free license allows you to add up to 10 remote computers in your viewer address book. You can use the license free in a business and personal setting. Only one free license key is allowed per individual company or organization. For more information, see our EULA. And if you need more than that, their buy it one time, use it forever uh, is also reasonably priced. So anyway, I'm so glad you asked, Andy. These guys really deserve a look. Um, I have a, over in my blog uh, on forums.grc.com, I've created a, my own thread of my favorite things, just sort of a place to hold the things that I like most. You know, sync.com is there. Uh, sync thing is there. This remote utilities is there. Just the thing, I just wanted a, like a place to just state, you know, these things deserve people's uh, attention and I, I think use. So anyway, remoteutilities.com. These guys are great. And boy, I mean, it's called, it's remote utilities because it's actually more than just a remote desktop thing. Uh, you can do like remote registry, remote file transfer, a whole bunch of different things. And, it, you know, lots of authentication. I, I use the, the, the one-time password, a time-based one-time password compatible with any of the authenticators. So, for example, when I'm connecting to one of my machines, I have to give a password and then a, 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 a six-digit token, which, you know, is, is part of, you know, I have a, a, the OTP auth is my favorite uh uh, OTP app on, on iOS. So anyway, just can't say enough good things about them. Um, <clears throat> I did want to mention, uh, I, I posted a long posting I'm not going to read here yesterday to GRC's spinright.dev group. Uh, the, the subject was discovering systems mass storage devices. That's the screen that comes up. It's mostly blank with a little window in the middle that says discovering systems on the first line and then mass storage devices dot, dot, dot on the second line. And then at the very bottom, it has a flashing working. Anybody who's ever used Spinrite is familiar with this screen. I find that I still have a stress reaction to it because <laughs> if Spinrite was going to hang Somewhere. That's where it would break. <laughs> That's where it would break. And I'm sure that if Greg has nightmares in his sleep, it's this flashing discovering systems mass storage devices because people complain. I started Spinrite. I was all excited and I waited an hour. Uh, anyway, the, the reason I'm, I'm bringing it up is that uh, I've just finished – completely rewriting the code 
which is underneath that, is behind that. That's probably um, a hard thing to do. That well, and I didn't really intend to completely rewrite it. Do you but, you must use the operating system to do that, or no? No, I guess you can't. No, uh, now well, so now be, uh, because I'm I'm using the BIOS less and less. Right now, I'm I'm scanning the PCI bus, doing a complete Holy enumeration cow. of every device on the PCI bus. Wow, checking to see what it is, whether the device declares itself to be mass storage. If it's a mass storage declaration, then I look at what type of mass storage. If I if it's if it's a uh, an ATA IDE AHCI device, which Spinrite now understands, then I I look at the hardware registers that it is declaring. I then access the registers, perform a sanity check on them, and then talk to enumerate the drives that are attached and then ask them for their drive identity information their their sizing information their 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 capabilities basically behind the scenes i'm fleshing out a huge data structure that describes all of the devices that spinrite is able to talk to once i'm through with that then i go through a process that i call bios association because i need to know that which of the those things I have just found the BIOS already knows about. And so to do that, I have hashed as part of that process the boot sector on all of those devices, and I have deliberately left them in an error condition. So then I use the BIOS to read the boot sector of device 80, which is the first BIOS device, and I hash that. Then I perform a hash comparison of all of the hashes that I have found, of all of the boot sectors of the hardware that I have found, hoping that I will get exactly one match, not zero and not more than one, because that in that case, it means I have found which physical hardware device the BIOS is calling 80, in which case I add that to the, this da database and I go to the next BIOS device. So I scan through all the BIOS devices, reading all of the signatures. If I don't get a one-for-one -one, uh, boot sector hash match, then the act of reading the device from the BIOS will have cleared the error condition that I deliberately left the hardware in. So then I look through, I, I update all of the error conditions of all of the hardware, hopefully finding exactly one that is no longer in error, in which case I have my second strategy for performing the BIOS to physical drive matching. Wow. Once all that's done, I then look to see whether I did get BIOS matches for all of the hardware. If not, then I add to this database the, the BIOS devices for which I am not, which I do not have hardware uh, driver support. So, for example, if for spin right now, that would because I'm only doing AHCI and USB, and um, I mean uh, AHCI and, and ATA IDE. Other devices like USB connected or NVMe connected, those will be supported by the BIOS. So those get added, and once that's all done, I look to see whether there are any hardware devices that did not have BIOS support in which case they would not be labeled with BIOS designations, so I assign them numbers 1, 2, 3, and up. All of that is happening behind the screen that is flashing 
discovering systems mass storage devices. The point is, I just rewrote all of that because I looked at the old code and I realized, okay, I, I know how to do this so much better than I did, what, 20 years ago. So what, what the announcement that I was making to the group is that little anxiety-provoking flashing thing is going away. I've decided <laughs> it will be too much fun to sh to demo to animate you show that what you're process. doing. Yes, yes, that's what it's going to do. That's a great do. idea. I love and that. And so it'll bring up a big empty window and show the PCI bus being scanned and then devices being found, and it'll go bloop 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 bloop. It'll, it can't make that sound, unfortunately, because we're DOS. And besides, people tend to hate the sounds that I I have spin making anyway. <laughs> But uh, so that was what I wanted to I'm sure to say, you get somebody to volunteer new sounds. If there, you there's going to be uh, a uh, uh, that screen that is tremendously anxiety provoking, both for Spinrite users and for Greg and, and for me, that's going away to be replaced by actually it will have a nice diagnostic benefit also, because if it does actually get stuck somewhere, we will know where. And so I'll then have something to work from. So. That's great. Uh, That's cool, really impressive. A cool, yeah. a cool advance. Yeah. And that gives you a little sense for like what is going on behind the scenes. It's a simple looking screen. But yeah, as you said, Leo, there's there's a lot happening. It's a hard thing to do historically. Yeah. Enumerate all the devices attached to a computer. Yeah. Not easy. Okay. The story that uh, uh, this podcast was named after. Okay. We turn our attention to the small city of Oldsmar, Florida, home to approximately 15,000 residents. Oldsmar lies about 16 miles northwest of the much more widely known city of Tampa, Florida. The first signs that anything might be amiss at Oldsmar's municipal water treatment plant appeared last Friday morning when a plant operator noticed someone had remotely accessed a system that controls chemicals and other aspects of the water treatment process. The operator reportedly didn't think much of the event since his supervisor and co-workers regularly logged into the remote system to monitor operations. But then later that same day, in the early afternoon, around 1.30, the operator watched as someone remotely accessed the system again. He could see the mouse on his screen being moved to open various functions that controlled the water treatment process. This unknown person then opened the function that controls the input of sodium hydroxide, popularly known as lye, increasing it by 111 times. The intruder increased the level of sodium hydroxide to 11,100 parts per million from the normal proper level of 100 parts per million. Lye, or sodium hydroxide, is used in very small amounts to treat the acidity of water and to remove metals. 
It's also the active ingredient in liquid drain cleaners. And yes, in higher levels, such as 111 times normal, it is highly toxic. But your drains would be clean, so that's good. Yeah, well, you're, yes. <laughs> Your pipes so, would be clean. So that's a, that's a possibility. Not only, not only the pipes in your house, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Had the change not been reversed almost immediately, it would have raised the amount of the chemical to toxic levels. And I'll pause our story here to wonder why it is even possible to adjust through automation the amount of lye to a level which is 111 times normal and clearly poisonous. That seems like a fundamental oversight in the design of the system. Sure, perhaps allow a range of, you know, zero to 200 percent, but certainly not up to 11,100 percent. That's just loony. It shouldn't be on the meter. It shouldn't be on the dial. No. Yeah. No, it shouldn't go that high. Yeah. As they say, the stereo does not need to go yeah. to 11,100. No. It should just go to 10. Yeah. Fortunately, the operator who was watching this happen immediately, you know, like grabbed his mouse and changed the setting back to the normal 100 parts per million. And supposedly... Even if the malicious change had not been immediately reversed, other routine procedures within the plant would have caught the dangerous level before the water became available to residents. I guess it wasn't actually in the flow. It was in some tank, you know, being mixed or something. Uh, probably true because it needed, if it needed to, like, particip uh, precipitate out metals, then it may have been added and, like, you know, started, like, as right. part of the, right. the, the, the prep for a big vat. And it apparently takes anywhere between 24 and 36 hours for treated water of that sort to get into the supply. So in this case, no poison water ever escaped. The local county's sheriff department, however, there was a press conference held and questions were asked. The sheriff's department did not immediately respond to questions asking whether you, the utility required personnel to use two-factor authentication to gain remote access to interfaces such as the one that was breached in Oldsmar. The Reuters news agency, citing an interview with managers, reported that TeamViewer was the application used to gain remote access, but the department didn't immediately respond about the requirements for authentication. Jake, uh, Jake Brodsky an engineer with 31 years experience working in the water industry said it's not at all uncommon for water utilities to make such interfaces available remotely. While he frowns on the practice, he said that the managers were probably correct in stating that the public was never in any danger. In an interview, Brodsky said, quote, there's a bunch of different things water utilities look for. And if they see anything out of kilter, then they can isolate the storage water. The danger here is relatively minimal as long as you catch it soon enough, and there are multiple checks before that happens. Of course, if intruders can remotely tamper 
with a process, they may also be able to tamper with the safety redundancies in place. This was obviously not a sophisticated attack. I mean, why would you do it at 1 p.m. in the afternoon? You know, do it at 2 a.m. and maybe it would go unseen. Anyway, if Broadsky were advising Oldsmar um, on better securing their water treatment plant, he said, the first thing I'd probably do, and this almost doesn't cost anything, is you disable remote access, he said. Yeah. When remote access is required, as is a, as a, yeah, as is, gee, what a concept, as is occasionally the case, connections should be manually allowed by someone physically present and the access should time out after a brief period. He said, I can't imagine leaving a connection like that open and exposed to the world. This is cheap and easy, that meaning to add some protection. All you do is call the operator and you get the access you need. So, you know, stepping back from this, there has been so much talk and no obvious action through the years about the vulnerability of these SCADA systems. SCADA being the abbreviation for supervisory control and data acquisition. That's the generic term for all of these things that manage nuclear reactors and water treatment plants and pretty much anything. Um, you know, um, I believe that we are probably incredibly vulnerable in this country. There are too many instances like this where convenience has completely dictated policy and completely trumped security. I sincerely hope that managers who are responsible for the operational security of their industrial plants of every description hear about what happened in Oldsmar and take it to heart. You know, with any luck, uh, it may have been a wake-up call. I'm glad it has gotten the attention that it has because, you know, this was not a highly skilled attack. Uh, and it is horrifying to think that something like this, you know, if, if an attacker, I mean, it just seems like there's so much exposure. If you rely on the feedback only from a, a, a screen with on-screen meters, it would be so easy for someone to reset the meter to make it look like it was a hundred, it was reporting a hundred ppm, and have it set to eleven thousand one hundred, and who would know? The thing that I find interesting is that the person who got in seemed to know his way around pretty well. I mean, if I, you gave me access to that system, it might take me a while to figure out how to turn the lie setting up. I, it seems like an inside job to me. I don't know. Have they? Have they? Uh, I'll bet you there are people in Russia who know. Oh, uh, the, the, Who don't know water treatment plants? Know that's uh, that software and know how it works. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact that it's not that it's on the inter public internet is crazy. Just obviously crazy. It is crazy. And Leo, you know, we know that you know your round your way around GUI interfaces. True. I'll bet if you are looking at the screen, yeah. and apparently this person did poke around at oh, things okay. first, okay. there was All some right. poking around. You know, the, the, the mouse pointer didn't go directly to the lie setting. It like, you know, l opened various things. And then the person said, oh, lie, that sounds bad. Let's turn <laughs> that up. <laughs> wow. What a story. Wow. 
Yeah, I hope it's a wake up call. But, you know, yeah, we've seen stuff like this. Before. I know. And the worst I thing know. is if it is Russian or some sort of nation state, they often do these kinds of probes. It is weird they did one in the afternoon. But, yeah, you know, maybe it was the middle of the night in Russia. I don't know. Yeah, maybe didn't cry. <laughs> they the would know plot. better, yeah. I think. Oh, the, you know, yeah. what time is it? What time maybe is it they in weren't the bright, Maybe they weren't the brightest bulbs in Russia. Maybe not. And But often they do these probes uh, just to see what, you know, what's possible. Wow. It's just fascinating. Yeah. Uh, are we done? I think we can, we, can, we, uh, we can call it a day for security now. Oh, no, I don't cry. It's okay. It's going to be all right. You know why? Steve's going to be back next week. Episode 806. He's starting to work on it right now, I can tell. Uh, we do security now every Tuesday, 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern, 21.30 UTC. If you want to stop by and you know, watch us do it live. That would be the freshest version straight, you know, as we're actually creating it. You can go to twit.tv slash live. There's live audio and video streams of everything we do there. Uh, day and night, there's always something going on. If you're watching live, chat live, irc.twit.tv. Join the nice bunch of people who are also watching the show live. On-demand versions of the show are available from Steve's site, grc.com. He actually has some unique versions, a 16-kilobit audio version. Uh, does anybody download that anymore? Yeah. Okay. I get – when I, like, make a mistake and fumble you finger, I hear about it. Yeah. So, yeah. 16-kilobit, yeah. that's for the bandwidth impaired, probably mostly Australians. I don't know why. I just feel like <laughs> – they suffer, you know. Uh, there's also 64 kilobit audio, which is the standard. Um, there's even um, a transcript, which is written by Elaine Ferris. It's a human-written transcript. It's very useful. You can read along. Uh, my son is going through all the Security Now episodes now looking for any information about my Bitcoin password. <laughs> it drives him nuts. Because <laughs> as Bitcoin goes up, it's now, four, I, I probably shouldn't tell you, Steve, $47,000. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I said, it's making you crazy, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes, he says. Wow. <laughs> it's making me crazy. Uh, anyway, but that's a good thing. The, the transcripts let you search. It's a text file and then jump right to that part of security now. So very, very useful. We, uh, while you're there, by the way, pick up Spinrite. Uh 6.0 is the current version, but you will automatically be upgraded to 6.1 the minute it comes out. You can also participate in the ongoing development of that in the forums and so forth. So it's really a good time to get Spinrite if you, for some reason, haven't yet purchased the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. Um, we have 64 kilobit audio and video on our site, twit.tv slash sn. It's available on YouTube. There's an entire d dedicated uh, YouTube channel for security now. You can subscribe there. Actually, the best subscription, I think, would be in your favorite podcast player because then it would download it automatically and have it ready for you the minute you get in the car or you... You know, you go to bed or wherever you listen to your podcast. So do subscribe. I think that's a good idea. Steve will be back next week. So will I. I'm sure there'll be something to talk about. <laughs> we haven't run out yet. I just checked. Uh, 341 downloads of episode 802. There you go. Thank so, you, yeah. everybody. Yeah. Glad you like the 16 kilobit version. Um, yeah. Yeah. See, it's worth it. All right, Steve, have a great week, and I'll see you next Thank week. Thank you, buddy. Righto.
Sometimes the news of the week is best told by the people making and breaking it, and that is the essence of Tech News Weekly. Join me, Jason Howell, along with my co-host, Micah Sargent, as we interview the people who are breaking the news that you're probably already talking about. Plus, sometimes we actually get the people who are making the news, the people behind the story. That's Tech News Weekly on twit.tv. Security. 